two, three, go. Okay. Welcome to Sports Med Res's This Week in Review podcast, where we highlight the recent news in sports medicine research. Over the past week, we've had two posts on sportsmedres.org. That's res.org. In the first post, we highlighted a new position stand from the International Society of Sports Nutrition on caffeine and exercise performance. In the second post, we reported on a study where the authors noted that more than a third of former Olympic athletes reported pain or functional limitations related to a significant injury during their career. This week, we have Kyle Harris with us, the author of the post summarizing that Olympic study, here to discuss this post with us in more detail. Kyle, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Jeff. Good to be here. So to kind of get started, I was wondering if you could kind of tell us what caught your eye about the study that made you want to write it up? Sure. Uh, I think that I always gravitate towards uh, studies and posts that look at long-term outcomes um, in injured athletes, mostly because I feel pretty strongly that this is something that uh, we all need to be a little bit more cognizant of. How are we impacting our athletes today? And how will that translate out into when they're older, when they have kids? And, and I think that it's something that we need to spend a little bit more time acknowledging so that we can improve over time. What were the key findings that you kind of want the listeners and readers to get from this study? Uh, so I think the study had some really interesting uh, take-home messages that we as clinicians need to be aware of. I think first and foremost, um, the fact that one third of the surveyed uh, retired athletes still reported some type of pain or functional limitation, as you said earlier. This is a very large number. There was an, a lot of surveys that were collected here. I think the other thing to be thoughtful about in that is that these athletes that were surveyed go back as far as the 1948 London Olympics. So we have to imagine that these athletes are giving us data that show functional limitation and pain for a very, very long time after a potential injury. The other point that I would like to bring up about the study was that they did show that one in 15 athletes reported that they had some type of depression or depressive symptoms during their career. Among those, 84% of those athletes also reported an injury. So we see some connection here, although it's not, it's not clear that there is potentially some connection here between injury and depression, which I think requires some more, uh, some more follow-up after this study. I think you brought up a good point, which is it's interesting to think about these findings from the context of this representing about, what, 60, 70 years of Olympic athletes. And you almost wonder how the data would have looked if they could break it out on, by like more modern approaches sure. to medicine versus more traditional. And um, if we would see similar phenomenon, and my instinct is we probably would um, still see similar numbers. I think it's really interesting that idea that depression in one in 15 athletes, I think we're thinking more and more about the psychological aspect of our pa patients, but I think we need to keep in mind, like, that means that most athletic trainers or sports medicine physicians are probably working with at least one or two people with depressive symptoms that they need to monitor. And it seems like it was related to injury as well. 
Yeah, I, I got the same impression of that. And I know that there's some some other data that's out there that that connects um, identity as an athlete to injury and how that can change over time. And I think it'll be really interesting to, to see some other studies that would follow up a little bit more on that. And to, to my point earlier, and you, you asked a really good question at the beginning about what drew me to this. And I think this is one of those pieces of, of data that really draws me to these long-term injury studies is that you know, the athletes that we're dealing with right now and the athletes that we're helping treat right now, you know, I think that we have a duty to them to make sure that we're taking care of, of their psychological well-being as much as their physical well-being and, and preparing them long-term for what effects this injury could have. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Uh, we often focus our treatment goals on here and now and then more proximate outcomes like return to play. Right. Um, and then... I, I don't know how many of our patients end up hearing, especially um, if they graduate close, uh, close to the time of the injury or if they're not getting full-time services from an athletic trainer, uh, call me if you need me, you know? Right. right. Nobody ever actually tells them why you might need me. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I know that I, as a clinician, I, I've said that, you know, I, I've asked students to follow up with me and if they don't, you know, sometimes it can be difficult to follow back up with them. And I think that it would be really interesting to see a study similar to this, looking at other stratifications of athletes, other populations to see if we're seeing the same thing. You know, I, I would imagine, and, and as self-deprecating as this is, the level of care that I, that I was able to provide and the resources that I had in my clinical positions probably isn't up to the same level as what some of these Olympic level athletes are getting. So I wanted, I would love to see how this data would play out in less resourced areas or in other age groups or in other levels of competition. Yeah, I think that's a really good point because I feel like um, particularly coming at it from the osteoarthritis point of view, um, you've seen this with some of the stuff we've done together too of oftentimes people make statements of, oh, this sport is bad for your joints. And when you dig into it, it's really data from Olympic level athletes who we know are really unique in, for example, the amount of weight they put through their joints, if they're Olympic level weightlifters or the amount of mileage they might be experiencing or their need to push through. I think, what was it, like 25% of the athletes here said that they continued to play with an injury despite in, impaired performance. Yeah. Um, and you wonder, is that partially just a unique aspect to them because of the fact that, hey, I've got to meet my, complete my, compete in my trials in the next month. Um, so you wonder how this data applies to, you know, our college athletes, our high school athletes, even our middle school and rec athletes. And I don't have data for this. And I think we need data on this, but my suspicion is the long-term outcomes might be comparable. We might still see that one in three patients are saying, yeah, that injury I had in high school is the reason I still have this chronic pain. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think we can look at different rationales in, in some of these different age groups as well, but I, but I do, I think we would see similar data. And I think that, you know, you look at some of the athletes in the sports that they were involved in, in this study, and we're, we're talking about, you know, sports like handball and alpine skiing and, and freestyle skiing. As soon as you change that, that population, you're also going to change where those athletes are competing. You know, you're going to be looking at American football, which is something that isn't going to be you know, incorporated into this study. So you're adding in 
a different group, but I think you would probably see really similar results. And it all goes back to the point, you know, how, how are we treating these injuries? How are we counseling our patients? And that 25% that you mentioned, I think is a really interesting, interesting data point. You know, how are we encouraging them to stay active and train while still being responsible about their injury? Is that something that's coming from a clinician that they can do safely? Is that, you know, coming from, from the athlete that may be, might be non-compliant? I think there's a lot of nuance there that, that would be interesting to, to try to parse out. Yeah, so I guess the, the follow-up question to this is, you know, we lack data on the athletes that most of us are working with. Um, but we have this kind of red flag among the elite athletes. So, I mean, as you said, you like taking these posts that focus on long-term wellness. What would your message be? Like, what should the clinician that's listening to this right now do when they get into their clinic this afternoon? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. I think I would recommend that I think everybody needs to be aware of this. We might not be working with Olympic level athletes, but these are some of the best trained athletes in the world with access to really great care. And if these athletes are reporting these outcomes, you know, I, I think that it's a good talking point with our athletes that this is happening to Olympic elite level athletes. It can happen to anybody. And the chance of long-term pain or functional limitations probably increases as you have sporadic ability to get treatment or you, you know, move on from high school into college and it's, it's harder to, to connect with clinicians. So I think we just need to be able to counsel our patients just a little bit more about how what we're doing right now can help them, how the advice that we're giving them can translate into more long-term safety, but also have them acknowledge that, you know, none of this is foolproof and that there are still people that are presenting with pain and functional limitations for many, many years after they're done, after they're done performing. And, and I think we also, again, have a duty to be honest with our athletes about that. Yeah. I wonder how many of our athletes, for example, who have had an ACL reconstruction realize that about one in three are dis patients are dissatisfied at two to five years post-op. Um, sure. I was on a call this morning where the presenter was talking about the fact that you know, the ACL reconstruction is really designed to resolve an instability issue at the present moment so that you can continue with the activities you want to be doing. It was never really intended to prevent poor long-term outcomes. That sure. wasn't what it was there for. Um, it's similar to um, the Tommy John stuff that we had on the website a few week, a few days ago where, you know, the original intention wasn't for Tommy John surgery to improve performance or long-term outcomes. It was to get you back to play when you had no hope of having a career. But we've morphed these treatments into things that they were really never intended. And I think our patients carry with them that perception of, oh, if I get my ACL reconstruction, I'm good. Right. Right. And I think that loops back to the very first question that you asked me. And that's what draws me to some of these posts is, you know, I know that going, you know, through school, my, my, first few years as a clinician, you know, I really saw my, one of my measures of how successful I was as a clinician is how little time my athletes miss or how quickly I could get them back. And over time, you know, as I learned more, as you know, you and I got to work together on, on Sports Meserez, it, it really showed me that I think we need to be more cognizant of these long-term, these long-term effects 
that are going to happen after a lot of these athletes are, are done performing. And, and that was always a, a comment that I would make to athletes who were really pushing back and trying to get back into the game. I thought prematurely was, you know, I, I want them to not have dysfunction when they're older. I don't want it to impact their family life. I don't want it to impact their quality of life as they get older. And that was always kind of my standpoint, you know, again, after a few years of, of, of thinking through what I was doing and why it was so important. And that really will always draw me to these posts. I think this was a great post to, to kind of highlight that. Yeah, I think some listeners might be hearing this and thinking, well, we can't, we can't force these kids to do something. But I think there's a difference between saying you have to stay out versus making an informed decision. You know, I feel like we saw this in a post Jane had related to concussions um, last week or so, where athletes aren't really making informed decisions, are not properly informed Right. So therefore, they can't be making properly informed medical decisions. And I think we need to do a better job in sports medicine of ensuring our patients understand not just the short-term consequences of their decision, but the long-term consequences. And that's tricky with an 18-year-old to get them to think about, you know, when you're 30 and having kids, right, <laughs> right. Mind, you're going to be experiencing these issues. But I think... The thing that I've been interested in over the last few years is a lot of the the beginning of the bad outcomes seems to be not that far off. You know, it's like where you're at it in 12 months, two years post-op after an ACL reconstruction seems to be where you're going to be for the next 10 years. Sure. And that's not so far off for them. No, no. But you know what, Jeff, I think something else that, that's worth saying here is are, are we are athletes not making informed decisions because they're not taking in the information we're giving them or are they not making informed decisions because maybe we're not as clear on what those long-term impacts are going to be. So we don't counsel our athletes completely on it. That's something I always felt to me was something that I needed to be abreast on this information because that was my basis for my clinical decision-making. If you're not as comfortable with this or you're, you're not willing to, to kind of say that to an athlete, are they not making informed decisions because they're maybe not getting it? Yeah, that's an interesting point. Um, there's been some research in this area by people like Kim Bennell and Brian Petrosimone showing, you know, when you ask a clinician, are you having the discussion about long-term outcomes with patients after like an ACL reconstruction? The answer is, of course I do. When you ask the patients, very few of them say that they've had that discussion with their uh, provider. And well, one of the hypotheses is the, there's just people are misreporting, you know, they think they're having their conversation and they're not. Right. Yeah, of course. Another big one that I think is probably even more relevant is when do you have that conversation with the patient? If you have that discussion about the poor long-term outcomes at your first visit, <laughs> when you're doing the evaluation of like, you've got an ACL tear, right. that's going to be the thing that sticks with them <laughs> of, oh, I might be at increased risk for poor outcomes down the road. They're more focused on my season's over. Right. Absolutely. And I, I think that that goes, you know, folds into that idea of identity and how we deal with how athletes are going to deal with injuries. You know, for us, if you're seeing multiple ACL injuries in a season, you know, there's a script in your head that you're following because this is not the first one that you've seen. And it is very likely that it's the first ACL injury that that athlete has had to deal with mentally. So how much are this, are we, are we communicating as, as a, 
as a precaution for what we know to do and how much of it is it are we taking in? And I think we should always be cognizant of how, how are you taking in how that athlete's doing in the moment? Is this the right time to broach that subject and is it not? You know, I, I think that those are all, all important things that we can all be better about. Yeah, and I think some of it too is repetition, right? Like, like you said, being sensitive to when they might might be receptive to that thing, to that information. But also, you know, unlike the um, primary care provider or the orthopedic who only gets to spend a small window of time with them, the physical therapist and athletic trainer gets to see them repetitively, and which opens up the ability for us to gradually work that into our discussion more often. And hopefully the repetition will also help kind of and help inform them and get that information to stay with them. Um, but also I think we may be having the conversation, but we need to have better conversations too. I mean, not just for our injured athletes, but our non-injured athletes as well. Like I always joke that when I was in school as an athletic training student, I probably had more wellness classes and information <laughs> than our student athletes. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I always would be careful about opening up Pandora's box and all of this, but, you know, this could start to work its way into conversations about what workloads are on these clinicians. How many athletes are they seeing? How many athletes are they responsible for? You know, are clinicians firing off information in the here and now because they have to get it out because they have a lot of other athletes they need to see. And, and again, I don't think that that was necessarily, you know, it's a great conversation to have because of this study. It's certainly not something the study can provide any clear, clear clarification on because it wasn't part of it. But, you know, I, I know that that's something that I see clinicians facing is they might have more exposure, but they also have more exposure to more athletes or more patients. So, you know, how, how are we as, as clinicians dealing with that workload and, and how are we conveying that information? Yeah, I, it's definitely true. We need to be sensitive to the workload that we're experiencing in the clinic. I mean, I would, many of us, and I know myself, never actually probably treated one person at a time. I couldn't, um, I couldn't tell you one point in my, in my clinical career so far that I have really focused solely on a very, very small group. Um, and, and I think that that would be true for most of the people that would listen to this. And you wonder too, if that creates opportunities for us to potentially leverage peer mentors and stuff like that. You know, most of us in our facilities have somebody who's had a meniscal tear, who's had an ACL tear, who's has chronic ankle instability, that's gone through it and either had problems or had successes that you can say, um, can I potentially refer people suggest people reach out to you if there's an issue um, yeah. so that you ha can leverage some of that experience. Because I think one thing um, we've seen in the literature a little bit is sometimes the patients don't even want the information necessarily from us. Yep. It's more meaningful from somebody who's actually gone through it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, and, and this is actually connecting into a, a post that I've done I, probably quite a while ago. I would have to go back and really dig it out. But, you know, I think that that's a really interesting concept because there's also some, some information that's been presented out in the world about, you know, having athletes have some level of competition or some level of, of connection with other athletes as they go through a recovery process, you know, just to make it, to make that, that team energy feel like it's there 
So, you know, I think that that's a really smart strategy if, if you have the bandwidth to put that together. I think that that would be really powerful to athletes. And I, and I wonder if, if you see that put in place widespread over time, if we don't see changes in some of these depressive statistics. Yeah, I mean, I think that would be a great solution strategy to try and uh, decrease those uh, chances and also to potentially let people know that, you know, this isn't, you're not alone and you're not unique. I've been there, I've done that type thing. Right. Um, and I think we see that too with some of the online Facebook groups that you see for different conditions where people are, are gathered together, um, whether it's osteoarthritis or, I mean, even, the number of online pregnancy groups for people to kind awesome. of share stories of this is what my doctor is telling me, or these are my symptoms today. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and I think one of the things that I would have loved to be able to pull out of the data from this study, you know, was they really assess these kind of major injury events. And we know that with, you know, elite, elite level athletes, Olympic athletes, you know, it, their exposure is so high there. There's definitely smaller, more nagging injuries that are occurring that are woven in there that may or may not be reported. And I would really be interested to know how some of these, these kind of smaller injuries or smaller discomforts actually play out with regards to that as well. Yeah, so I, I know I had asked you for the take home. So it sounds like to synthesize this a little bit as we wrap up, it's almost, you know, be in tune with your patient recognize what's going on with them from a holistic point of view, not just how's their joint or how's the injured body part, but how's the whole patient doing? Taking advantage of opportunities when you can have those discussions with your patient um, and potentially offering information about, you know, instead of just let me know if you need me, you know, here's the things to kind of let me know are happening. You know, if your joint swells up after a run, let me know. And then also exploring alternative approaches where you can potentially engage in some of this information or get the patient engaged in some of this information where you're not consumed by your current workload, whether it's trying to identify students that might be good mentors or peer mentors uh, to help, or you know, even if it's something that can be presented to the team as a whole of you know, after your athletic careers, here are the things to think about. We're maintaining a physically active lifestyle, maintaining a healthy diet, and letting clinicians know throughout your life if, you know, you're feeling depressive symptoms or if you're experiencing some chronic pain, you know, don't keep it to yourself. It's better to raise awareness than to deal, just live with it and just assume it's part of aging. Yeah, I think that the way you said it is perfect. You know, we want to have a conversation with our athletes. We don't want to tell them. We want to actually have a conversation and see where they're at. Yeah. Great. Thanks, Kyle. I appreciate you taking the time today to chat. I really appreciate it, Jeff. Thank you. Don't forget that we also share extra material on social media. This week's most popular post was a meta-analysis where the authors found that leukocyte-poor platelet-rich plasma reduces the rate of re-tear or incomplete tendon healing after arthroscopic rotator cuff repair and improves patient reported outcomes as compared with a control. And if you're an athletic trainer who's looking for evidence-based practice CEUs, then please check out our six online evidence-based practice CEU courses that are available through Human Connect's website. We'll have links to our summaries, the courses, and the article on our website and in our show notes. 
Remember, you can always follow us on Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn. We'll be back next week with more sports medicine research. Until then, have a fun one.